Dr. Belbert and Kimo Brass, Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a founding member of Baseball Prospectus and the author of an eponymous baseball newsletter. He's also the writer-in-residence at Fangraphs for the month of April. It's Joe Sheehan. Joe Sheehan is the guest. And on this edition of the program, he recounts some of the early days of Baseball Prospectus, including his own admission of the entire St. Louis Cardinals chapter in the first edition of the Baseball Prospectus Annual. He recalls in vivid Technicolor imagery the process of playing stratomatic baseball through the mail with Randy Jazierly, a sentence that already sounds old-fashioned. And in addition to making a number of worthy comments on the pastime, he also spreads terrible misinformation, terrible, hurtful misinformation about former BP writer Dane Perry. I, I got to work with Dane as a writer at uh, Prospectus years ago. I loved his work. I, I think Dane's writing is great. I think he's a great guy. All of that and what's to follow? Let's get to it immediately. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Fangraphs resident for the month of April, Joe Sheehan. And when does it begin? Right now. Well, yeah, I look forward to it. Uh, it. I think we have a sense of it. It's good because I'm 37. So, I mean, and, and I might get you were roughly this age, maybe a little I'm, bit older, even. I was 40 when Marina was born. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, I, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm optimistic. I'm kind of excited about being an older parent because I, you know, some people I think I, they have children maybe younger than they would have liked, and there's a sense that the birth of the child somehow um, has prevented them from pursuing mm-hmm. certain avenues. Mm-hmm. It's, I am totally comfortable with the fact that I have exhausted all of – any of my potential, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, you, you've, you you've gotten to live your life and now yeah. you're ready to do this part of life. I absolutely get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, you know, um, and I think that – right. So I will have no – there will be no misnomers that I could have been great. It, it, was, uh, it was all me. Um, now, you, uh, you worked for Baseball Prospectus for some time. Uh, yeah, I was one of the founding members. Uh, Baseball Prospectus was the brainchild of Gary Huckabay and Clay Davenport, stemming from work that they were doing on Usenet news groups back in the early 1990s. And then, oh, is uh, that the Rex like Rex, Rex Sport Baseball? The yeah, Rex Sport Baseball was the community that we all participated in. Uh, but there were thousands and thousands of news groups, mostly dedicated to uh, uh, porn. But uh, there were a couple that weren't, and RSB was one of them. Uh, Gary and Clay ended up inviting Randy Giselli, Christina Carl, and uh, myself in. So we were the original five. Wait, so the, I don't have to really no sense. What, what year are we talking about here? This would have been the winter of 95, 96. Uh, Gary, I want to say it was November 14th, 1995 that Gary called me. Okay. What were the, what was it like on that? Honestly, uh, I mean, I was aware of the internet at the time. I was nearly an adult. But I don't really understand what it looked like. I mean, is it just a sort of message board in the middle of uh, cyberspace? Yeah, I mean, it was. It, it, I don't know that there's a, a comp for it now that we've been using graphical browsers for 20 years, and you know, we we go to place. We basically do everything in comment sections now. But mm-hmm. it was, you know, a ASCII interface. I want to say it was. I want to say Usenet was. You accessed it originally via like a Unix interface, but I could be wrong about that. I'm trying to remember computer things from 25 years ago. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was all text-based, you know, except for like this. And there were places where you could basically go to download ASCII, not ASCII, um, the code basically to, for images. You know, in the days of 14.4 modems, I guess this is how people got their porn. 
But Rexport Baseball was just a, a message board, basically. It was, uh, and, and it was a big deal when we got threading. That was a big deal at one point. But you just, and it was really, there was noise as there going to be with anything else. But I think the signal was higher than than in any other place I've ever encountered. Uh, there were just a ton of, and, and some people ended up becoming, you know, people within the baseball community. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guys that did prospectus, um, uh, Derek Zumstag, I want to say, was involved early on. He was a prospectus, then he was with Fangraphs. He wrote a great, great book on the history of cheating in baseball. Uh, then there's people who just were really smart, never really, you know, they had real jobs and real lives and went on to do whatever they did. Uh, Dave Nieporant, Dave Tate. Uh, Ron Johnson. Uh, I'm, I'm just remembering names from 20 odd years ago, but it was a great community of people that just got on there to talk baseball. Yeah, it's hard. And I think, well, if I don't, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, I think Dave Cameron was also involved, like a teenage Dave Cameron. Yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, I, I honestly, entirely, Dave would have fit in perfectly there. I have no problem believing he was an RSB guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I I was thinking it would be a, a teenage Dave Cameron would be annoying, but um, I mean he's annoying enough now. A teenage, all of us are annoying. That's the catch. Yeah, that's a good point. So, <clears throat> um, so that was that was how Baseball Prospectus was founded. How how did it uh, come about that it was the five of you? Do do you have a sense of that? Well, it's a Gary, uh, Clay was doing these translations, which were a fe- were basically really good uh, minor league equivalencies. He would publish those on RSB, and people would volunteer to write player comments around them. So for a couple of years, that's the way it was done. And on RSB, you would find the Yankee uh, Davenport translations along with Joe Sheehan making snarky remarks. I think I did the Yankees one or two years. And 30 volunteers, well, I guess back then, 26 or 28 volunteers would pop up to to write the comments for the various DTs. Gary, at the time, was working on a projection system. I believe it was Vladimir at the time. Uh... And basically Clay and Gary figured, okay, let's put this stuff into a book. Bill James had stopped doing the abstracts in 88. He'd stopped doing the baseball book in 92. There was something of a void for doing a book-type thing. And what we eventually decided, we wanted to write the book we wanted to read. When Gary and Clay mentioned this project, Randy Gisarely, who was a friend of mine through playing Stratomatic, went to them to offer what he called at the time the organizational pitching reports, which were things that he was self-publishing just about the strength of minor league pitching prospects and team systems. Randy told me he was going to be involved, and I was jealous. I had just graduated from USC with a degree in journalism. I knew these guys from talking online with them, and I said to Randy, I said, you know, if they're looking for somebody to edit the project, that's my skill set. I'm happy to help out. Gary then reached out to me to get involved, and uh, I, I don't remember how Christine, uh, then at the time Chris Carl, got involved, but... Uh, uh, she was brought in, and the five of us were basically, okay, what do we do now? Uh, we put together uh, what I called a practice book with four teams, and then we ended up essentially advanced selling the book. So we got, if 250 people sent in checks for 2195, we printed 250 books. I know we printed 250 books because I remember mm-hmm. doing that. Um, and it was it was ugly, man. It's <laughs> it, mm-hmm. is, it is a white on white cover with this impact font that I much have lo- must have loved at the time. Um, it, it through an error in, well, I'm not going to use the passive voice. I left the St. Louis Cardinals out of the book. I just forgot to oh, send seriously? them to the printer. So yeah, the first baseball prospectus book does not include the St. Louis Cardinals. We ended up sending out a PDF of the of the of the book. So if somewhere on my hard drive here or on a laptop sitting around the house is a PDF of the '96 St. Louis Cardinals, but the book itself doesn't include it. So that's kind of a a famous origin story and. uh Really it seems mir- like a big omission 
Um, yeah, yeah. Because they're a major league team. And, uh, <laughs> I'm curious as to how did that happen though? It was there just no one. I was very, very tired. I was very, a very whole, tired. An entire team. Now, was it all written already? It was all written. I, I, I literally just neglected. I was literally doing this. I, I was working at James Publishing at the time, which is a, like a very, very small legal publishing company. Um, my then fiance and I were actually about to get married. Uh, a whole lot of things were going on in the winter and spring of 2000. Excuse me, in 1996, and the one of them was trying to put this book together, and uh, it was daunting, and I just screwed up at the end. There's, no, I, I got to wear it. So, yeah. So the book has just a gap. It goes from page X to page X plus 23 at some point, and uh, the cardinals are missing. So, uh, yeah, we sent those out, and uh, I'd say the surprise of the first book is that we got to do a second. Uh, by the second time, a small publisher in California offered to actually publish the book, um, Brassies, and. Uh, we were off and running. I want to say we sold 1,200 copies of the second one. And uh, today, Baseball Prospectus is a going concern, 22 years old now. I guess the, the current book is the 22nd. And uh, it all started uh, with five guys and uh, no St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> yeah, that is a, that's a, that's a It was not thing. an editorial comment to leave the Cardinals out. Uh, just, I don't want to tick off the best fans in baseball. It was absolutely not an editorial comment. Well, I'm trying to think what the, what that, what 96, 95, 96 Cardinals team, what that looked like. I guess, was McGuire, was McGuire still around then? Yeah, McGuire had just been traded to the Cardinals. I want to say 94, 90, well, 94, this has come up recently. 94, 95 is the last time the Cardinals had back to back losing seasons. Yeah. So yeah, they, really, they weren't that important. At some, well, I remember at some point in my youth, they were not the sort of um, consistently competitive franchise uh, that they've become. Well, they, they um, don't. They they just have not strung. Other than the two year, the ninety four ninety five were the strike years. Mm-hmm. Before that, you have to go back to fifty eight fifty nine to find the last Cardinals consecutive losing seasons by the Cardinals. So while they weren't winning at the rate they've been in the the O's and the tens. You go through the Red Shane, Red Shane Deanst years in the 70s, the Joe Torre years in the 80s. They've simply never been bad for more than two years in a row, which to me is an astounding track record. Yeah. This is the, uh, who, who would have played for those mid 90s? Was Reggie Sanders there at that point? Yeah, uh, that was when Sanders was bouncing around. Uh, yeah, I know they drafted Drew in 98, so it wouldn't have been him. I guess Scott Rowland. That was oh, when yeah, they, around right. the time they traded for Scott Rowland. Um, TLR had come over, I want to say... 94 or 95. Mike Jorgensen was briefly the manager, and then TLR showed up, I think, in 95. Mm-hmm. They traded for McGuire in 95, and they were, they've were basically been good ever since. Oh, yes. The, the, uh, your starting rotation for the 95 team is Mark Petkajic. I had him on a strat team, Petkajic. Okay. Yeah, I was not particularly familiar with him. Alan Watson, who had a nearly one-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio. You could get away with that back then. You actually could get away with that back then because two other pitchers, Ken Hill and Danny Jackson, had basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's strange. I don't. You don't really think of it as being that recent that uh, you could, could survive with that skill set. Yeah, I think about the 70s and the early 80s with guys like Larry Gore and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I, mean, it's, I, I try to – I talk about this a lot in my own work. With I write a lot about the changes in the game, strikeout rate and power and – it's just how the game has radically changed over the last 20 years in terms of what pitchers are expected to do. Sorry, right, well, I don't know where you wanted to go with this. I'm a thousand miles off field. No, no. You well, you wrote about this. You actually wrote about that uh, just last week at the site about the about yeah. essentially if you want to look for the 
for the origins of the pace of play problem, it's uh, it's like 130 years ago at this point. Yeah, when they let when they decided uh, we're going to stop making the pitchers throw underhand, and at that point you basically turned the pitchers into the most important players on the field. It wasn't like that in the early going. The early going baseball was functionally like you know supposed to be a slow pitch softball game. Put the ball in play. The the, the pitcher was the the center in base in, in football. He's the guy who starts the play, and everybody else gets to run around. And we've got obviously gone, you know, uh, if not 180 degrees, certainly 90 degrees from where, where we started out. Now it's a pitcher batter game more than anything else. And I think that goes to how we, we write about it and we talk about it. We focus on deliveries and grips and catcher framing and swings and launch angles. The game over 100, and, go back 130 years, has become more and more focused from the field. All the way down to the pitcher battle. The pitcher batter battle. I'm sober, I swear. Wait, tell me about a radio hit. I do not do a lot of radio hits. What is that? What hap- ha- What happens? Uh, typically, uh, well, most of my date to relationships that go back into you know prospectus days. Mm-hmm. But really, it's just you know they call you up and producer says hang on and you go on the air and talk baseball for 15, 20 minutes. I was just talking about this with Ben Lindbergh the other day, as a matter of fact. Uh, I, for me, it's just. I get to talk baseball. I mean, I love talking baseball. So it's wor- it's part of the job, and you're promoting the newsletter and you know promoting the work I do at SI or the Washington Post, the Athletic, whatever it might be. But really, for me, it's just I get to talk baseball. And because a lot of it is with people I've been talking with for 10, 20 years, it's really like talking with friends. I always want my radio hits to not be, I'm giving you the information as you know baseball data guy. I want it to be two guys talking baseball. So when I talk to Louis Bellina in College Station or Bernie Miklas in St. Louis, um, it's really tries you try to have that that tone of just talking baseball with friends. I think that's the best best baseball content. Um, I think about the, the the my favorite podcast now is probably the uh, Sleeper of the Bust, which is Paul Sporer, Eno Saris, and Jason Collette in various uh, uh, groupings and. Uh, they, to me, capture that, hey, we're going to talk baseball smartly, but we're really just a bunch of friends sitting around having a good time. So I really try A bunch to... of dopes. Well, <laughs> I can't speak to the third of it, but, it, you know, Saris and Paul Spore are both dopes. <laughs> I can say that uh, with, I'm not with gonna, a, You say that with love, I know. High degree of certainty, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're all good guys. I, I, I really enjoy the work they do. And they seem to they capture that. That's what Randy and I were trying to do. I mean, Randy and I were essentially just taping – the phone calls that we'd been having for 15 years, going back to when we were playing in strat leagues together. Um, and I really think the best baseball audio content has that. Uh, I think about, um, you know, Ben and Sam. And, and, and not to say that Ben and Jeff, Ben and Jeff will have that kind of rapport over time, but Ben and Sam had worked together for 900 episodes or whatever it was. And you have uh, Eric Carabell and Tristan Cockroft. Uh, you think about the stuff that Bill Simmons does when he has his friends on and they're just talking sports. I think the that's really what you're striving for when you're doing a podcast. You don't want people to think they're take, they're they're in a clash. You want them to think they're at the bar. So right. So you you think that it's and and, and I see your point here, and I, I think I agree with your point, which is that there's no there's no real advantage. There's nothing to be gained necessarily from simply being right about baseball. Uh, it is essentially uh, uh, it's a it is a um, a medium that facilitates relationships between people. At its best, yeah. Yeah, right. I think I agree with that. Now, you said a very nerdy thing a couple seconds ago, uh, that you that you and Ranny were in a strat league together. Yes. Uh, but I don't think – now, you said – all right, so you were at USC, is that right? Uh, yeah, this was, when I met Ranny, using the term broadly, um, he was advertising on Usenet for 
player players in his uh, play by uh, male strat league, and this is just getting nerdier by the second. Yeah, no, um, no, and it's also <laughs> the, the great thing about it is it's also um, requiring the use of what are now considered uh, ancient technologies. So this right. is fascinating. Continue. Like stratomatic baseball, with uh, beat each other on Usenet. Yes, we're not old folks. Uh, yeah, so I joined Randy's league, and uh, we just really hit it off. We were two baseball obsessed. Uh, well, I guess he was thirteen at the time, and then Johns Hopkins. And uh, yeah, I was a, a junior at USC. And uh, wait, he was he, wait. Say, how old was he? I'm, jo- I'm, jo- I'm joking, but he was very. You're lying. Was, was he actually younger? Uh, than he, was, other... he was either he was sixteen or seventeen when he when he got to Johns Hopkins. He was young. He was young. Wait, so he was like Doogie Howser. <laughs> I'm sure he's never heard that before either. Uh, but no, he Wait, has he, yeah. do you think, do, do people call him Doogie all the time? I don't know if they do anymore since the show's been off the air for 20 years, but I'm certain back then when he was in college, yeah, he probably got plenty of that. Wait, he went to college as a, as like a, like before his 18th birthday? Yeah. Cause he was a, cause he's a couple years younger than me and we were basically on the same track. Oh my. Yeah. Oh my. So, so he, he turned 42 years ago, I want to say. So he'd huh. be coming up on 42, on 46, he's four years younger than me. So yeah, he was 16, I want to say, at Johns Hopkins, which is no joke, just to give you an idea. Randy Janelle is a genius, folks, if you didn't know that already. Um, one of the smartest, one of the best guys. Yeah. yeah, so anyway, that's how we came into the, each other's lives, and uh, we just, we would stay up all night BSing, and this was back when you actually had to have, like, the baseball encyclopedia in front of you and have baseball arguments, and we would both do that, you know, and it was, it was great. It's, you know, one of the most rewarding, lasting friendships I've ever had, and uh, it's all because of baseball. So wait, you're commu- so you're communicating with him. You you meet each other by way of the Rec Sports Baseball community, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you're and then he he puts out an advertisement to the effect that he's looking for people to participate in his strat league. And you say it's a male league. It's a male. Yeah, this was the, back then you literally had to put instructions for your team into an envelope, lick a stamp, and send it to the other player. And how do you even perform? Like, how do you decide what team you're going to have? Well, or, you, or you, have, draft? you have draft. You have drafts. In fact, we did draft usually by uh, by phone calls. So you literally have one person calling every player in the league for an entire day to get his pick. Okay. There, there. I'll tell you, there are 22 year olds listening to this that have that. It's like we're describing using whale oil to light lamps. No, but I, I will say I'm not that much younger than you, and it's still a. <laughs> it's still fascinating because I'm just thinking of. All of like all of the impediments that would for, that would you know essentially just make it too annoying to actually yep. follow through. You had and to yet, really you, want it, and yet and yet like a like a senator from Massachusetts, you persisted. <laughs> it's um yeah. It, it, all right, you so remember, we didn't have as many distractions back then. We had you know thirty table channels, and you know we didn't have the worldwide web or anything. We basically, I would go to class, I would play basketball and racquetball, and I would play strat. And so, wait. When you're playing with teams here, do you have like you are either you are the Royals or you are you're a team that you draft? It's like a fan of, in Strat. Essentially, Strat puts out cards based on the previous season. So, in yeah. February of 2000, uh, February of 1998, they'd have the cards based on the 97 season. Um, and in these leagues, you well, there was an initial draft I was inheriting a team for, um, and you just continue. It's it's keeper, and in that case, it's keeper. So you're just you know you. If you draft No More Garshapara, you had No More Garshapara for six good years and then a lot of frustrating ones. Trade, you can trade draft picks. It's basically a fantasy league, except you're instead, instead of caring about this year's stats, you care more about the cards. Plus, you have the element of playing the game. You actually play out the games. So, and who and who simulates the games? Um, well, there were a few ways to do it back then. 
you're, you would send your opponent instructions. This is how I want you to manage my team. If you start a lefty, use this lineup. Then later, if you change, you would pinch it. it it's rigid and it's not that great, but it, it enables you to actually play the games. Eventually, Strat came up with an in-game manager that, that you were able to use. It was also not that great. Nowadays, um, and I've done this before, you can actually play over Skype. Or, you know, there are, there are dice rolling bots that you can go to. And even back then, you could go online to different places. And where there's is two people will enter a chat room and then just, you'll hit a, a code and it'll pop up the dice rolls for Stratomatic. So, um, this way, everybody's on the same page and you actually get the benefit of actually playing the game head to head. Okay. Now, how do you trust? So if you send the instructions for your, your team to run. You have to. You, you, you just have to trust. I mean, if you're not going to trust the people who play the game fairly, kind of what's the point? And generally speaking, there's a pretty large home field advantage in play by mail leagues. And again, these things don't really exist anymore because the, the, the ability to play over the internet has kill the need for actual play-by-mail leagues. You just don't need to do that anymore. But uh, as far as back then, there was a built-in home, home field advantage just because you could see the situations develop, whereas the road managers just had to kind of write instructions as best he could. Oh, huh. wow. Yeah, I wonder what. I wonder if you were to conduct a study what the – because what's, what's home field advantage? In case you're curious, I didn't have a lot of girlfriends in college either. Well, <laughs> I, I was uh, – that was implied – Yes, I think by the the previous however many minutes of this conversation, but what was so home field advantage in major league baseball is I think like plus four percent. It's like this would have been higher. This would have been closer to fifty seven, fifty eight percent. Fifty seven, fifty eight percent. Wow. And and how long does it take? How long did it take at this point to to simulate a game? Oh, I could play a solitaire game of strat. I mean, what you do to set up when you pull the cards and get the instructions set up. I mean, that's the hardest part. And yeah, I can basically bang through a four-game series in an hour 15. Hmm. It's a lot of manual dice rolling is taking up your time, really. Would you ever talk to Randy as he was simulating a game? Well, Randy and I would occasionally play by phone. Mm-hmm. We trusted each other at this point. We weren't strangers. So it would be more fun to play head-to-head, so we do it by phone. I remember one time even, this would have been, I don't know, summer vacation maybe, or it might have even been after, gradu- after I graduated going down to Baltimore and we played some game. We played a playoff series, I think. Um, I went down to see him at Johns Hopkins and we played, uh, and we, anytime you get Randy and I together, everything takes longer because we're just constantly talking, if you can imagine. Um, yeah, no, so, I can, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it was, you know, we, we would, uh, but you know, a lot of times it was just, hey, we don't have time, send me the instructions. I think we might have graduated to email at this point, like email instructions, but I honestly don't recall. This is, remains fascinating. Now, you now you said that you were at, at USC, but I don't think you're from uh, Southern California. No, I'm from uh, New York. I actually grew up uh, – I was born in the Bronx, and I grew up in Inwood, which is the last neighborhood in Manhattan before you get to the Bronx. Uh, and then it, when I was deciding whether we're going to go to school, it was basically go to USC or go to Fordham, which is literally would have been a commuter school for me, uh, about you know, 20 minutes on the 12 bus. And when you're 18 years old, that's not really a hard decision. It's not the smartest decision, um, and I think it's questionable why we let 18-year-olds make these decisions. But, uh, yeah, I chose to go to SC, and, uh, you know, I mean, I had a, a lot of wonderful things happen at SC, and I made lifelong friends, and uh, I got a, a journalism degree, that, and I got to I, – I was taught by incredible professors. But I think if you make me an 18-year-old today or you let me talk to that 18-year-old today, I tell them, stay in state, save your money keep this really cool job you have. I was working at the Elias Sports Bureau at the time. 
and let your life develop that way. So, um, wait, you so why were those the only two decisions? I didn't apply to seventeen schools like a lot of people did. I applied to four: uh, yeah. NYU, Notre Dame, and then the two I got into. Uh, and you know, Notre Dame was the dream. I'd wanted to go to Notre Dame since I could walk, and uh, Notre Dame had other ideas. How did <laughs> how did the how did that dream form? Is it I mean, is it informed? Um, if you're an Irish kid growing up in New York, you just I mean, Notre Dame is essentially our school. Notre Dame, even to this day, is New York's college college football team. Uh, so you grow up here, you just it, it's part of it's who you are. Notre Dame was this mythological place where all us young, good Irish boys would aspire to. Uh, it was built into me. So, do you think it still is? Do you think it still has that same effect? I don't know. Um, I would imagine in certain pockets. I, I don't know if it's as widespread as it is as it was back then. I certainly think the nationalization of college football and think, trends in media and culture have changed that, certainly, whereas, you know, and just the distance from the Newt Rockne era. A lot of things mm-hmm. have changed over time. So, no, I would say it's not the uh, same that it was back then. A lot of it was motivated by, you know, the great football teams and cheer, cheer for old Notre Dame. I mean, I can hear my grandfather saying, singing that to me. Uh, Did your grandfather go to Notre Dame? No, no. I was part of the first generation of she and Scott College. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were very uh, – my, my mom was working at 16. We weren't that kind of family. But then my generation, uh, most of us have degrees now. So we're, we're all very proud of that. Um, and so and what is USC like for a person who's – a kid who's from New York and then um, you're now you're in Southern California? Uh, I mean – I did not fit in. I spent, I ended up spending almost the better part of 17 years in, in the Southern California area and never really, it never felt like home to me. I was actually going to come home after college and I uh, ended up meeting my then, meeting somebody who would become my wife. So I ended up going back out to California. I was literally, like I had a, a ticket home and then I met this girl and I ended up moving back out. Um, so it was never my intention to stay out there. I didn't care for it. I think now Los Angeles is a little more uh, welcoming. Uh, back then it was... Every cliche about Los Angeles spread out and, you know, the smog and the pollution and the people. I think all those things are true. I think Los Angeles is changing. It's going to take a couple of generations, but, you know, there's a there there now. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Gertrude Stein actually said that about Oakland, so that's probably a bad analogy. But the point is, uh, L.A. is better. I think if I would go to L.A. now as an 18-year-old, I would enjoy it more. Um, so, but, you know, it's... It, Did it have again, a sense of, at that point, of, like, people who just come from other places? Yeah, I, I think that that's probably changed now. I, 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 it's been 10 years I've lived there. You know, uh, but even then, there was still that, you know, L.A. is the place you come to from, you know, the wide-eyed girl getting off the bus looking to be a star or right. the uh, the insecure teenager from the city, you know, trying to remake himself in Los Angeles. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I, I think that SC was... I think SC had a lot of really wonderful people. I can't speak for I didn't I, I didn't experience Los Angeles as much maybe as I should have as a teenager, but I think SC itself had a lot of wonderful people. I was very fortunate to to be educated by, to become friends with, to work with uh, incredible people. I've often said that if I didn't stumble into this career in uh, in journalism and sports media, I would have liked to have worked at a university. It really felt like a, a very positive atmosphere. Let me let me say something that. Uh... That's naive. This is a naive comment, but I think that, um, but that, that's m- most of the things I have to say are naive. Um, I've been, I've been surprised because I, I I've never lived in California, but I've lived in both in Seattle and uh, Portland, Oregon, and I was struck and I was surprised by this 
people actually have essentially different, uh, different, you know, in some cases, different behaviors, right? They act differently, um, which I thought was maybe not possible because we all live in the same country. Um, and oh I, no, 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 no! Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with the, I would, the, the regional differences are really something. That's what, yeah, that's what, I, and and that's what I was struck by. Now, I never felt more like a New Englander. It never felt a greater attachment to New England or greater allegiance to New England than when I was elsewhere. Yep. Um, but but it seems like you had sort of seventeen years for you for to let yours percolate. Perc- did, did you do you feel like you formed a more of a New York identity uh, by being away from it? Maybe. Um, I remember telling somebody the story the other day. Um, my one of the first week first days I was there, there was some ice cream social or something in my, uh, my apartment complex. And uh, we go around the room, we introduce ourselves. At the end of it, the RA says to me, like, good night, Bruno. What? <laughs> oh, everybody, from, this was this total sweetheart of a girl from Minnesota. And uh, she says, well, everybody from New York should be named Vinny or Bruno. And so there are people who, to this day, still remember me as Bruno from freshman year at Parkside. Um, and that name persisted for, uh, you know, throughout the, among some, some people would still call me Bruno throughout my SC days. Um, and it was, just but from, it would, uh, from an offhand comment? Yeah, it, it, it stuck. This is the, this is the way you get nicknames. You know, I was Flamingo when I played baseball. Uh, there was, and, and I think that enhanced the whole, you know, oh, okay, I'm the guy from New York. And to, I, I had a lot of fun with that. Um, my second or third week at SC, I was coming out of, uh, I was taking a one credit, uh, basketball class. Came out, and I was hot, I was sweaty. There was a Burger King across from campus, so I, went, I started to walk to it. I, I jaywalked to it. And uh, a cop pulls me over. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I spent my entire life in New York City, uh, and I'm getting a ticket for jaywalking my third week in Los Angeles. And it was a $20 fine, and I paid it, and I've probably gotten thousands of dollars of value out of the story over the years. But little things like that were you know, the fish-out-of-water thing. But you got a you got a ticket for jaywalking. I got a ticket for jaywalking my third week in Los Angeles. Was it part of like a uh, like a um, mis uh, misconceived like community policing initiative or something? I, for all I know, it was uh, a TV show, and I just you know I was on a candy camera or something. I I was laughing. I, I I wasn't trying to be disrespectful, but I just couldn't. I was just, wait, you're giving me a ticket for something I've been doing my whole life? I, I don't know, you know, people have been in New York, they don't know what it's like, but essentially the, the pedestrians run the traffic in New York. The pedestrians dictate where everybody goes. And, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I wasn't causing a traffic jam. I was literally, in L.A., the blocks are, like, mile long, and I was, like, literally in between. I'm like, okay, I can go a half mile that way, a half mile that way, or I can just cross this street. And I broke the law, what did I say? You know, I'm, uh, it was the start of my crime career. Yeah. But, uh, Anyway, so it was little, little things like that that kind of, but I to, to kind of bring it back, I never felt like LA was my home. Um, friends, seventeen years there, lived in three or four different places, and married there, um, but I just never it was never home. To me. And uh, it's funny now though because I've been back here it'll be ten years next month, and New York no longer feels like home to me, which is strange. Uh, the maybe and that some of that is just getting older. But New York has a degree of difficulty that is no longer enjoyable for me. Uh, yeah, well, I want to ask you about where you live now in a second. I want to ask you first, though, growing up in New York, did I mean, were the Yankees your team? Oh, yeah. I grew up about – I mean, you literally could walk to the stadium from where I grew up, but it was really just a quick, you know, $6 cab ride or a, a, the, a, the A train or the D train took about 20 minutes. Um, I lived there as a kid. There were always tickets around. This was the early 80s. You know, it's not like it is today when – 
you know, tickets are really expensive and, you know, the, the park is full. It used to be cheap and, you know, 12,000 uh, 12, people would show up. So I would go to a ton of games every year. And who were the dudes and who were your Yankees guys? Don Mattingly. Well, my first favorite player ever was Chris Chambliss. Um, I don't know how I ended up uh, a Chris Chambliss fan. I really don't. Uh, the only thing I figure is that maybe when I was five, the home run against the Royals in 76 had an impact. But um, 78, 79, I remember him being my favorite player. He was traded at the end of 79. I can still hear, or should say, I can still see Jerry Girard on the WPX News at 7.30 telling me that he had been traded to Toronto for Rick Cerrone and crying. Um, I was eight at the time. And who was uh, the one who was traded for Rick Cerrone? Chris Chambliss. Okay, okay, Chris Chambliss. Jerry, Jerry Gerard was the, the announcer, the longtime New York announcer. I can still see it. and I can see the season. I can literally see my living room and see Jerry Gerard on the team. Chris Chambliss had just been traded. Um, then Willie Randolph, and then uh, I was, you know, from the time Don Mattingly came up in, in 83. He had 14 at-bats in 2000, excuse me, 1982. But then in 1983, he was a part-time player, and I just was over the moon. I was 12 years old. I was enthralled by baseball. There was this left-handed hitter, hit out of Crouch, just not, I mean, and they get, this is before sabermetrics. This is before you would look at things like walk rate or whatever. There was just this young left-handed hitter, and I just knew he was, I just loved it. And from 83 until I went to college in 89, I would say I saw 90% of Don Mattingly's plate appearances either at the ballpark or on television. I well, just yeah, what, was the, what do you think was the alert? Because New York seemed pretty taken with Mattingly in general, and I, I assumed a lot of that, or I, I have assumed that that had to do with his performance, but it sounds like uh, you had some interest in him before he was really even a star. Yeah, I'm actually not sure. I can remember, like, 1983, and, like, wanting him to play more, and, like, how come he's not playing more, and he should be playing over, I don't know if it was Gary Ward or whatever. Dave Collins, I guess, would have been in 83, and Steve Kemp, and the guys that were getting playing time ahead of him. Um, and, and wanting him to be on that field. But I, I can't tell you exactly what it was. I just Maybe it's that he was you know, a young player coming up at a time when the Yankees were... I mean, this was the early part of when George Steinbrenner really started to destroy the team. And it, it, he was somebody who represented the other part of that, the, the up-and-coming youngster, as opposed to the Omar Moreno, Dan Collins, Steve Kemp, let's go sign free agents like crazy. Um, he was a homegrown Yankee. Maybe because he was the first homegrown, him and Dave Rigetti, I guess, would have been the first real homegrown Yankees that kind of, I came up, that came up while I was a young fan. So maybe it was that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and of course, in 84, he wins the batting title and he becomes a superstar and then everybody's, you know, on Don Manley. But my my living room, which is my, my bedroom as a kid, had three posters. Randolph, Rigetti, Manley. Was, Ra- was Randolph a homegrown guy too? Uh... To, to me, he was, but no, he was. He came over from I want to say the Pirates in the mid seventies. He was traded from the Pirates. Um, that would have been before I was. Uh, I, this the first season I really remember is seventy nine. I, I kind of vaguely remember seventy seven, seventy eight. But I was eight years old in seventy nine. That was the year I first started keeping a notebook and listening, trying to stay up late to listen to the games on the West Coast. And you know, it's a shame. You know, they won in seventy seven. They won in seventy eight. And I become a fan the year that uh, Cliff Johnson decides to break Goose Gossage's thumb in a clubhouse fight. Do you, do you do you ever go back? Uh, and obviously, this would be even um, a more profound experience because it was uh, more, I suppose, more distant from uh, the sabermetric uh, beginnings, beginnings of sabermetrics. Do you ever go back and investigate those teams that you cared for as a young man um, and attempt to sort of or uh, to examine them in the in the light of the. Um, you know, of the sort of metrics that are available now to kind of 
and see like maybe where your uh, your perception of them as players was um, you know different from what what obje- the objective reality would suggest. No, 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 not not in any structured way. I mean, mm-hmm. on any given day, I might end up looking at a team page from the '80s, like you and I just ended up looking at the '95 Cardinals. I might end up doing that on any given day and noticing something or recognizing something. I, I already know now that, you know, I was in 1983, I wasn't thinking about baseball the way I would think about baseball 10 years later. And then 10 years after that and 10 years after that, it was just, things were different than I was experiencing as a 12 year old fan who knew box scores and baseball card stats. And I mean, Strat was, I came to Strat in 1981. So even then Strat was kind of teaching me walks are good, you know, and things like that. There were things you were learning through Strat that just were kind of slowly becoming embedded. But for the most part, you know, I, I don't think I've ever gone back. The one part, the one thing I did do, um, in working on a, a, a research piece on Jack Morris, this would have been 2003 or so, uh, 2002, I guess, I went through every box score for Jack Morris's teams from 77, I guess, through 93, it would have been. And by doing that, of course, I was coming across a lot of Yankees games, but more what I was doing is I was experiencing the baseball of my youth and seeing just how different the game was played. And that that project, to this day, informs a lot of my thinking. Like, if you ever really want to get a sense, just sit there, pick a team, the, whatever your favorite team might have been in 1983, and go through their games, go through their box scores, and see how different the game looks then. You know, a pitcher would get taken out in the third inning, of a 2-1 game because he wasn't pitching well. And somebody would come in and throw five innings of relief. You know, I, I think about that going through these box scores. It's, it's a totally different game. Um, guys would be pinch hit for. There were platoons, defensive replacements. It was a different game. It was played differently. You know, I, we talked earlier about, you know, strikeout rates. You know, you'd see guys be good pitchers and have, like, 67 walks and 48 strikeouts. But they were good pitchers because you could get away with that back then. So, so if I didn't necessarily do this in a clinical way, I've done it just as part of my work over the last 20 years. And I'd like to say, if you're a baseball fan of any age, just go look at box scores or BR pages from 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and it gives you a sense of how the game has evolved. Yeah, I want to say with regard to that 79 team, uh, as you're talking here, I'm just uh, you know briefly examining some of the, the numbers from from that particular team, uh, in, especially with regard to strikeout rates. It's constantly surprising right um like tommy john who led the team in innings and actually led the team in war he had seven wins he struck out only 10 percent of the batters he faced it's um, just remarkable yeah it's not that long ago i mean i you know i was watching these games i was watching these games in 79 and it's a little older than you I mean, it's a little before your time but i mean it's not that it, but then i think about it um in 1979, as an eight-year-old watching the game, or, you know, it, 30 years before that, we would have been back in 1949 when they just started letting black people play. Like, that's how fast things can change. We think it's not that, it's within the scope of my lifetime, but within the scope of 30 years, incredibly big things can change. So, I have no idea what my point is at this point. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think, uh, it was a Theodore Parker who said the arc of... He says something about the arc. Oh, yeah, the arc of the moral universe. Uh, curves Bands towards toward, fairness. Yeah, bends towards justice, maybe. Justice, thank you. The arc of the baseball universe. Arcs towards strikeouts. Arcs towards strikeouts, <laughs> yeah. So do you think that, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking about 10% walk rates or strikeout rates not that long ago. 
Are are we? Is it going to be a time when half the batters are striking out? No, I think eventually. I, I feel like twenty five percent is the tripwire. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think at the point at which, if strikeouts were to rise twenty five percent of plate appearances, at that point the league would have to step in and make some kind of significant adjustment to the game. As it is this year, uh, I want to say Dave had this couple. Dave uh, Cameron had this uh, last week. Like uh, three true outcome rates are over a third. So a third of plays in baseball involve the ball not being put in play. Right. You're yeah. going to eventually get to a point where you're going to have an unwatchable game. I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think the focus has been more on the pace and the length of games as opposed to the style of games, but the two are intertwined. You can't fix one without fixing the other. So whether it's moving the mound back, Randy and I got into this on Twitter the other night. I'm skeptical just because I think there's, there's, there's a lot of unintended consequences, but I think we might get to that point where pitchers – the velocity that pitchers can generate, the speed on their fastball, basically breaks the geometry of the game. And we're getting close to that. And as, as you noted in, in the, the piece that you wrote on the sort of relationship between three true outcomes and uh, pace of play in baseball, th- there's the question, right, is there an objectively ideal time of, for a game to last? Because you had mentioned that, that uh, you know, maybe now, we think of two and a half hours or the generation behind us maybe thinks of two and a half hours um, as ideal, but then the generation behind, behind that one might think of two hours as the ideal length. Right. And I, I, I see there's a, you know, movies, the experience of going to a movie is about two and a half hours. If you throw in previews, I love previews. Um, so I think two and a half hours feels like, okay, this is the amount of time an activity should take, except the last time games were two and a half hours long was 1976 or 77. I did this the other day. And players were tiny, and they didn't throw hard. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a different game. It's a physically different game. Um, so, yeah, if you want two and a half hour baseball games, that's fine. But you can do it one of two ways. You can make them seven inning games, or you can have height limits, weight limits, and velocity limits. You're, you're not going to do it with players who are this big, this strong, and can throw this hard. It's just not going to happen. So if you want to watch Larry Boa... That that's great, but it's not going to look like today's baseball. Um, yeah, well, I guess I'm, I'm curious as to how the league, in previous you know, in previous occasions, has arrived at a certain number, arrived at a decision like you know, um, deciding to what raise the mound, lower the mound. Um, uh, well, by and large, baseball's always just reacted to the last thing. Right. The the lowering of the mound in 1969 came about as a response to 1968 where this was the the dead the pinnacle of the dead the second dead ball era and Bob Gibson had the 112 ERA and the batting title in the AL was won by a guy with 301 and something had to be done so they lowered the mound and that did mostly even things out for a couple of years but I mean 90, 69 to 73 is still a dead zone and really you don't get a good offensive year again until you get closer to the bicentennial and then 77 was a big offensive year uh, but really baseball's never I say baseball as if it's actually a person, but the people who run baseball never really sat down and said, what do we want baseball to look like? More what they've done is reacted to an extreme situation. So the strike zone was blown up in 63 after expansion had led to some big offensive years in 60, 61, and 62. And then they lowered the mound and, and changed the strike zone again in 69 after, you know, it had gone the other way in 68. The DH came about in 73 because the AL felt like it didn't have enough offense. And, the DH wasn't invented then. The DH, the idea of the DH was 80 years old at that point. Uh, 
you know, even something like the drug testing. Drug testing wasn't a response to anything other than home run rates. Um, and I'm going to have something about this at Fangraphs this week. Um, whatever other red herrings have been thrown out there about drug testing, drug testing happened because a bunch of guys hit a bunch of homers. That's the right. only reason we have drug testing. Um, so, again, it's always been reactive. And I think probably sometime in the next 10 years, Rob Manfred's going to have to get people. I don't just mean the people he listens to now. I'm not talking about the Joe Torres of the world. I'm thinking he's going to, he's going to have to bring in Nate Silver and Dave Cameron and Dane Perry and Dave Seanfield, people who sit and watch baseball 180 days a year. And I'm not talking about the ballpark. I'm talking about they're watching 10, 12 games a night, flipping around, seeing all of the trends. You only notice it when you're watching it that way, I feel like. I feel like if you're at the game – you're not going to notice it as much. I think you have to talk to these people who are covering the game in this new way that's only been developed in the last 20 years um, and sit them down and say, what is baseball and what do we want baseball to be? I don't know what the answer to that is. Maybe the optimal state of baseball is a 20% strikeout rate and a 4% homer on contact and, you know, all of those things. And, uh, you know, but we have to stop looking at it through the prism of runs per game because that's getting us to the wrong answer and start thinking in terms of strikeout rates and home run rates and are we giving the defense enough to do. You know, There's been all this focus on, on shifts, and the problem isn't where the shortstop is standing. The problem is the shortstop doesn't have enough to do. That's what has got to be fixed. Right. Um, Sorry, I just made a speech, man. I didn't mean to do that. No, 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 no. It's good. Uh, but it, I'm actually glad you did it because uh, it reminded me of a question I wanted to ask you. Um, Joe Sheehan, some, um, some men are born terrible. Others, others are made terrible, uh, by circumstance. Which, which one applies to Dane Perry, do you think? Jesus, I thought you were going to ask about me. No, 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 no. <laughs> Dane Perry. Yeah, which one do you think applies to That's him? birth. That, that's just birth. The, the, the Southern heritage. It's really just the Southern heritage. Yeah. He's, he has evil inside of him. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, when did you, uh, you know, Dane is a, uh, is a monthly guest on Fangraphs Audio. Um, I'm curious as to, and, and he's, a, he's abominable um, and disgusting. I'm curious uh, when you would have met Dane in this process. I don't know when, became, I, when I met Dane. I think the last time I saw Dane was at a, uh, my friend Dave, this is a roundabout story, he won a contest to design a hole in the video game Golden Tee. Ah, okay, yeah. Part right. of the prize was a party, which Dave elected to have in Chicago because that's where his brother-in-law lives and just seemed a better place to have it than uh, the, the San Fernando Valley. So I was excited for Dave. I came out for the party. I told various Chicago people, and Dane came out. And I think that was the last time I saw Dane. So this would have been 2010 maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, – Maybe 11, I don't remember. Anyway, it was the last time I got to hang out with Dane. I've, I've only gotten to hang out with Dane a handful of times. And I I, I know you guys have a, a fun rapport, and I've listened to the podcast, and I know you guys on Twitter, and you guys go back and forth. But um, I, I love Dane. It's as not a, fun, Joe. It's not <laughs> fun. <laughs> I, I got to work with Dane as a writer at uh, Prospectus years ago. I loved his work then. He wrote really one of the – what I think is one of the best – uh, takes on the what what is now really not a war anymore. But you go back 15 years, and it was the whole idea that stats and scouts, you know, are kind of this conflicting thing. And Dave compared them to having, excuse me, Dane compared them to having to having beer and tacos. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to choose between beer and tacos. It was a wonderful piece, and uh, I, 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 it's one of the best things I've ever written, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I know you listen. You, 
<laughs> you guys are great, and you guys are we'll you guys definitely have a fun report. But no, I, I, I think Dane's writing is great. I think he's a great guy. It's not surprising to me that Dane would write one good piece because <laughs> I think that uh, you know if you if you put uh, three monkeys in a room and let them bang away at a typewriter, um, you get something that'll be on CBS next month. Infinitely, yeah, yeah. Well, CBS, that's well, let's not keep the bar too low. Um, Although I guess CBS uh, CBS Sports is. is I was going to say that was an accident. That accidentally kind of brought the streams together. Yeah, no, it did. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, that's the company that also was hired, Dane. So perhaps, uh, perhaps it makes too much sense. I think Dane. We could have Dane and Matt do uh, a kind of a, a, a male version of do, do a two broke two broke bloggers, two broke guys. Mm-hmm. Put it on at nine o'clock after the other one with the uh, Cat Dennings. Yeah, I don't. I know. I don't know Matt too well. Have you, um, I don't actually. I just. I, I know he. I think he's the other uh, BSD over there at the CBS blog. I just assumed he was the perfect foil for Dane. We can have you and you. We can have you and Dane do it. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, we are broke. That's true. Dane's so lucky. He has a, a wife with a real job. Sports media. It's where it's where everybody goes to make their money. Yeah. So uh, so now we've plumbed the past a little bit. Where do you currently live? I live in Yonkers, which is just outside of New York City. Uh, I've been up yeah. here for about three and a half years. Um, when I moved back to New York, we actually lived in my old neighborhood in Inwood. Uh, but yeah, I'm up in. It's it's it's. I'm 800 yards from the the city line, but I'm off the subway, so it tends to feel a little bit more remote than that. But uh, really, even though I've been in Westchester for four years, most of my life is still in the city. You know, my daughter's in Brooklyn. Uh, most of my friends, if I'm gonna, my friends are scattered, but if I'm going to see my friends, we're probably going to do it in the city somewhere. So, you know, my life is still pretty much in New York City. I uh, I spent some time living in Dobbs Ferry, mm-hmm. and um, I remember. I guess we took what the Hudson Line for the Metro. Yeah, the Metro North down into the city. Sure. Now, is that what is that the one on which Yonkers is located? Or is uh, Dobbs Ferry. I think that that goes right along the river. That would be me. Yeah, that would be my line. Oh yeah. I'm on the right. other side of Yonkers, so really, I just end up going to the subway. Oh, is that right? You can just do it's that close, huh? It's well, it's a short bus trip or it's a quick cab ride, but uh, it's not. If it was, I wish I wish it was walking distance. It's not. Um, but yeah, the 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 Metro North Rail Line runs along the water along the Yonkers waterfront. It's really, it's really a lovely trip if you go up that uh, that line you know, right along the river, and uh, that'll take you up into you know, Minton Dobbs Ferry. And uh, there's, you know, so I, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, dis- I don't dislike Westchester. <laughs> just. Uh, yeah, you know, I guess I'm a, and like I guess as I get older, you know, the city kind of wears you down. But uh, also, I'm what? I'm old, man. I can't do the winters anymore. Spiten dival. What is that? It is. It's a Dutch word for something, but essentially, it's the. It was the split between Manhattan Island and the mainland. It's uh, okay, and they actually physically moved it. A few years back, well, I'll say a few years back. It's a long time ago. So Manhattan used to run up until about 230th Street. And when they filled in Spite and Dival, they moved it up about a mile. Or probably half mile. So that Spite and Dival is now the body of water that bridges the East and the Hudson Rivers. Hmm. I'm probably saying this wrong. But it essentially really it's means... in, yeah, what does it mean? Spouting Devil. Yeah. Which is also a good description for me. So, right. but no, it's uh, so I would always remember that stop um, from from riding that Metro North Line. There's always a Spite and Dival. I said yeah. this is not. Well, yeah. Not if you, so if you're at Spite and Dival, the next one is Riverdale. From Riverdale, you can see the Little League Field, Diamond Six, at Inwood Park that I grew up playing on. 
Is that right? Absolutely. So you so you lived right along the um, you lived right along the, the Metro North Line. If it existed, I don't know. Well, no, the the, the 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 route you take actually comes up through the Bronx. It never actually touches. Well, it leaves Manhattan at one twenty fifth and it goes up through the Bronx. Uh, I would always just take the subway, but yeah, you can see we, we you, you can see the, the 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 trains. You can see the Metro North trains from my old Little League field. That's great. Yeah, that's funny. I I, I would like I could talk about Inwood all day. I mean that's. I've subjected any number of people to walking tours of Inwood that uh, it could not possibly have interested them less, but entertained me. But uh, how close I, were you to how close were you to to the to that Fordham Bronx uh, campus? Uh, it was a twenty minute bus ride on the twelve, and only be and it, it's just it's yeah as the crow flies it was like you know five minute trip, but you know there were no crows that I could get on so. No, no, that would be uh, yeah, some sort of animal cruelty, I'm sure. I remember visiting at one point the Belmont neighborhood. Um, which I guess was over there in the Bronx. And I mm-hmm. think that a lot of Italian people lived over there, maybe. Yeah, and there's still pockets. Uh, a lot of this area right now, if you look at a demographic map, a lot of it mm-hmm. is Hispanic. Uh, my, my neighborhood in Inwood was Irish and Dominican, almost split down the middle back then. Um, and now you know, a little more Dominican than that. Uh, there, were, there was literally a physical line. If you cross, East of Broadway was uh, largely Latin, and west of Broadway was still largely uh, Old Irish, but uh, that's changed. But even throughout the Bronx and Upper Manhattan, you still have pockets uh, that kind of reflect the uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? The enclaves that mm-hmm. were there you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean eventually everybody's going to die off. What would happen in Inwood is in Inwood, a lot of the people I grew up with, their families ended up moving up to Riverdale or up to Westchester as they got older. Yeah. Oh, oh, right. And it would make sense because I know that. Uh, so Inwood's just uh, what north northeast of Washington Heights. Yeah, it's, it's literally the last – Neighborhood on Manhattan Island. Okay, yeah, and of course there's a, there is a large Dominican population yes. in Washington Heights. Yes. Um, um, I mean, I think Manny Ramirez, among others, has come out. Manny went to G Dubs. That was the Heights. Yep. Uh, right. uh, Pedro Alvarez comes out of that neighborhood. Oh, does he? Yep. I did not know that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Well, Allison, I'll, I can stop annoying you. I think you've uh, you've uh, um, fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. We've oh wait, you recorded, you recorded this? <laughs> I thought we were just talking. We record. I've recorded for an hour. We'll see how much of it worked. Um, of course, uh, my incompetence is, uh, or my weakness is strong. I guess is how the comedian Pat Oswald says it. Um, yeah. Well, th- well, thank you, Joshian. Though it's been a pleasure to make your acquaintance. No, definitely, Carson. I'm glad to finally talk to you. I've really enjoyed getting to write a fan graphs this uh, this month. I, I hope that people are enjoying the residency, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing who you guys get going forward. I think it's going to be a, a fascinating program. Yeah, and you, you just submitted a piece, I think, right? I did, actually. I'm going to send you a better version, but uh, it's going to be tomorrow. And it's going to be on some of the stuff we talked about today in terms of uh, uh, drug, uh, the, the PED issue and home run rates and things like that. Okay, all right. All right, well, cool. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Right, and l- let me make sure we get your titles correct. You are Joshian. You are – I know that you are the author of an eponymous newsletter. Yeah, uh, the Joshian Baseball Newsletter. People can check that out on the Facebook Sheehan Newsletter. And then at Joe underscore Sheehan on Twitter, I write for Sports Illustrated. I write for the Washington Post. I write for the Athletic Chicago, although I haven't done that in a while. Um, and as we talked about the start, I'll, I'll go on any radio station that's above about 300 watts. All right. Well, I'm going to call you. I'm going to say right now, it was Joe Sheehan. He is the uh, the resident for Fangraphs for April. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.